been very, very surreal. I think for talk that's compared sort of to do with mortality, this is a really quite a frightening symbol to have in front of one. Um, so basically, uh, yeah, I was on a, on, a, on a show just now with, with Kanye West. Um, at one point today, I'd, and, and Jerry Halliwell and Ricky Gervais, I, I sat there thinking, this is one of those Hollywood movies where I'm actually on an operating table dying, and this is all just some terrible fantasy in the final closing moments of my life. Um, so, but I, I hope that's not the case. So, um, yeah, I'm going to talk about this book. Um, so this is me wearing uh, what... I remember that jumper vividly. Um, I was 11 there, and that is a tawny eagle called Frodo, which is quite excruciating. Um, and Frodo is still alive and still looks exactly the same, which is very galling. So basically, who is this child? Well, this was me. Um, I, was, I was a nightmare child. Um, most children, I think, have obsessions, um, dinosaurs, ponies, etc., etc. These wonderful ways in which children learn series of objects, learn how, the, how to carve the world at the joints, and also have a bit of power over parents and of authority figures by knowing names of dinosaurs that no one else knows. Uh, my, my obsession was hawks. In fact, it reached such a pitch that um, I used to try and go to sleep when I was about six with my arms behind my back like wings. Um, this didn't work, obviously, one can't really sleep like that. Um, and then I used to try and pray to the god Horus during school assemblies. Um, I mean, it was a terrible bit of heresy. And I, I just, when I discovered there was such a thing as falconry, that was it, you know, that was what I wanted to be. Mum was like, are you going to be a doctor or a lawyer? And I'm like, no, I'm going to be a falconer. And her and my dad would be like, oh, you know. So they took me to falconry centres. Um, I learnt how to fly hawks. I got my first hawk age 12, a little kestrel called Amy. Uh, like Billy Casper in Kez, I used to fly her on my school playing field. Unlike Billy Casper, she didn't die horribly, and I had a very, very happy childhood. <laughs> so, um, and then I ended up, long story, I ended up uh, working for a while in, in, in the Middle East, in the Gulf States, um, breeding captive bred falcons for um, Arab royal family. It's a huge tradition out there. Um, there are considerable conservation problems associated with it, particularly with the taking of wild falcons for use in falconry. So we were trying to kind of replace them, as it were, with, whoops, let's go back, with, um, with captive bred ones. Um, so I flew many, many hawks. I became a historian. Um, I sort of drifted away from falconry. But all the hawks I flew were falcons. So if you think of birds of prey as being a little bit like aeroplanes, as uh, my father and I used to sort of joke about because he was obsessed with aeroplanes. Uh, falcons are rather like F-16 fighters. They're sort of incredibly aerial, uh, and they sort of use speed to fly down their quarry in the air. Goshawks, however, are more like Apache helicopter gunships. Um, as you can see, they're incredibly heavily armed, have terrifying starey yellow-orange eyes. Um, I'm actually quite nervous standing under this picture. Um, they also have a reputation as being not only brutal killers, but also fantastically hard to train. They're very highly strung, very nervous. Once you've tamed them, they don't stay tame. You have to keep reminding them that you're not a monster. I... <sighs> then this thing happened, you know. Um, this is me and my dad many, many years ago, in I think 1975 at Windsor Safari Park, back when it was still there with its dreadful dolphin show. Um, and this is an, a parrot, and as you can see, I'm, I'm pretty transfixed by it, and Dad is rather amused by this. Um, we were really good friends. Um, we used to go out on, on what we used to call our anorak expeditions. He was obsessed with aeroplanes, I was obsessed with birds, we used to carry binoculars and just look up at things, you know. Um, and then one day, he was gone. I got a phone call from my mum. She just said I had a phone call from St. Thomas's Hospital, and at that point, I knew that he was dead. I didn't need to hear any more. 
he had a massive, uh, a massive heart attack. He was a press photographer, a very good one. Um, he was the one that took that famous photograph of Charles and Diana kissing on the balcony, um, for which he stood for 14 hours uh, without drinking or eating in a crowd and half killed himself. Mum was like, what do you think you were doing? He said, I got the picture. So that was my dad. And um, after he was gone, I, I, I just felt the world had kind of blown away. And I started dreaming of these every single night. Um, something was trying to tell me something. And I think once, I'm sure many of you have lost dear people, and things happen to you. You start to, your, your motives become... Uh, unamenable to conscious examination. You start to do things without really knowing why. And what I wanted to do was train a goshawk. Um, the reasons for that only later became apparent. So, one Scottish morning, <laughs> I paced up and down a quayside in Stranra. Um, it was like a drugs deal, basically. I don't know why I didn't get arrested. I had 800 pounds in my back pocket in an envelope. Um, I was smoking furiously at that point. Uh, I was drinking kind of uh, fizzy stuff. I picked up this goshawk and I brought her back to Cambridge and this is the first morning, as you can see I'm kind of ragged and so is she, and um, then began the great ancient dance of training a hawk. It's probably one of the oldest human-animal relationships. Um, it's been dated pretty well to at least 4,000 years BC. And one of the things that's fascinating about it is that hawks don't change. They've never been domesticated ever, they always have to be taken and trained from scratch and tamed from scratch. And as such, they've come to mean wildness in many cultures in a way that other animals don't. And the methods of training them too haven't really changed very much. You can't bully or monster a bird of prey. You have to tame them through, well, my friend Stephen Bodio describes it as um, falconry as being um, learning how to be polite to a bird, which is what you do. Um, you give them gifts of delicious raw steak, you sit with them in darkened rooms, and slowly they begin to see you not as a monster but as a friend. And then um, you ask them to jump to you, first to your fist, and then fly to you on a line indoors. And then comes this terrible moment where you have to go outside. <laughs> now, you go outside because you want to get your hawk used to people, you want to tame it. And the problem was that I was incredibly untamed by this point. I'd flown to the hawk because the hawk was everything I wanted to be. The hawk was sort of solitary, self-possessed, full of what seemed to be kind of rage. And uh, I didn't want to be a human anymore. And I spent so much time staring at her in order to try and work out what she was thinking so I could train her and interact with her without frightening her that I was beginning to see the world through her eyes. So this is New Square in Cambridge. I don't know if any of you have been there. Cambridge is a quite an eccentric place, um, but there are limits. <laughs> so you can, you can wear a gown and wander around and bump into things or maybe sort of drop copies of Latin primers in rivers and stuff, but that's all fine. But walking around with a bloody great hawk on your fist does give you some very strange stares. So what I did was walk up and down this sort of place um, every evening with the hawk, lost in grief, concentrating on the hawk to the point where the hawk was all I could really think about, all I could be, to the point where I, I started to get confused with what I was seeing. I saw a woman once throwing a ball for a dog, and I kept thinking, what, what is she doing? What, what, why would anyone do that? Meanwhile, the hawk is staring at the dog with a look of predatory intent on her face, and I walk on. Um, and some people didn't see me at all. I, I started to believe in this kind of weird, magical way that, again, I think connected with grief, that I wasn't there. I wasn't in, an, in another world, and I was invisible. And only some people could see me, and they were the people that came and talked to me and they tended to be outsiders. So I had teenage goths, I had travelers, I had um, foreign students, um, 
the local kids around the corner that broke my window. That was quite funny. They broke my window with a stone, then later they saw me with a, saw me with a hawk and sort of, we won't do that again, you know. Um, and slowly I, I, I learned to, um, this is me looking very cross, um, I, I trained her to on a long line called a crounce on my, on my college cricket, cricket pitch, much to the consternation of pretty much everyone at college, to be honest. I kept saying, I used to do this here in the 17th century, it's fine. Um, and eventually came the day when I had to fly her free. And now this is a very, very strange point in Birds of Prey, in handling and in falconry, because really the whole point of falconry is to have this relationship with a, with a wild animal. And it can be a very intimate relationship, a very, very equitable one, really. I mean, my, my goshawk used to play with me. I used to throw her paper balls. She used to catch them in her beak and throw them back to me. I used to tell my falconer friends this, and they used to be horrified. They say, you don't play with goshawks. And I'd be like, why not? And they go, you just don't. You know, these are all big guys with tattoos. Anyway, much later I discovered that they all do. They just don't let on about it. <laughs> so um, there she is. There's Mabel. Um, Falconry is kind of about not just that relationship, but it's also about loss and return. And I didn't really realize that at the time. But what happens when you have a bird like this is you let it go fl fly free and... There's nothing to stop it going back to the wild except the lines that you've built, the lines of trust and familiarity and what the 17th century falcons would have called love between you and the bird. Obviously, it helps if you're holding a bit of meat for it to come and fly to, but, um, but I was very much conscious that I wanted this bird to do all the things that birds of prey do in the wild, and I, I knew that that would involve hunting. I wanted to just watch the bird do wild hawk things, which, of course, was ironic because, again, I was trying to fly as, fast from death as, as far from death as I could, and yet here I was with a bird that represents death uh, and ferocity in, in, in pretty much every, every culture in which they exist. And then I took her out hunting and suddenly something changed. I watched her fly and um, the world turned into something very, very different. I don't quite know what it was, but I think I was looking through her eyes. Um, there I am, wandering off up the hill. The, the whole ontology of the countryside changed for me. It became a very complicated place that was full of wind and light and movement. Um, it became a much more particulate, you know, all those plant names I'd learned when I was a child suddenly became very obvious to me when I looked at things. You know, this was an extraordinary tapestry of other lives. And I felt inside it, it felt like a very hackneyed thing. But I would go out for hours each day and get covered in mud and thorn scratches and come back with... Um, rabbits that she'd caught and um, we'd share them. I had very little money at that point, so I'd end up eating my bit cooked, obviously, and hers raw, um, along with various things I got from the local shop that were reduced for, for quick sale. So I remember one horrible day I had fried rabbits on stale crumpets. <laughs> I was in a bad way. <laughs> but something really bad was happening, and, and I think basically what, ha what was happening is I, I wasn't really acknowledging my grief. I was flying from it. I was becoming this hawk in order to escape it. And it was working incredibly well. I didn't think about other people. One of my great regrets is I, I really neglected my mum and my brother. I didn't see very much of them at that point. Um, I, let, I let them be. That was a bad thing to have done. Mum's really good about that. She goes, oh, you just, you know, it's just you, isn't it, Helen? You do that sort of thing. I was like, oh, sorry, Mum. I started to wake up with my face completely wet. And I never knew why. I started sobbing in my sleep. And um, I started to become even more strange. I started to do things like flinch if people walked past the window of my house. Um, I, I radically separated myself from any society, any company at all. 
I started to stuff my face with food or eat nothing. Um, I was basically turning into what I thought was a hawk. I was using nature as a mirror of my own needs, and I think that's one of the great lessons that I learned that year is that it's not. Um, and then there came this extraordinary moment where I went to my, my father's memorial service at St. Bride's and st sort of stood there, you know, still with kind of thorn scratches all over me and looked at the congregation and realized I'd made this terrible mistake. I'd, I'd, I'd read all those books that told you that when you're broken, you should run to the green, you should run to nature and it will heal everything. Um, I took it far too far. The, uh, the great ecologist Aldo Leopold wrote about falconry and said it's an extraordinary thing because it's basically a balancing act between the wild and the tame. If your hawk's too wild, it will fly away. If it's too tame, it won't be a hawk. And I guess that was the big realization. There's an extraordinary paper by the um, anthropologist Rane Villaslev that I mentioned in the book. He talks about uh, the Yukage people in Siberia. He went hunting with them as part of his anthropological research. And they do an amazing thing there. When they're hunting reindeer, they cover themselves in reindeer skins and wear reindeer antlers and somehow take upon themselves some part of the, the, the reindeer's soul. Then they go out and they see the reindeer and the reindeer recognize them as one of their own and come towards them, which obviously ends quite badly for the reindeer. There's an amazing story he tells about one man who tracked a whole herd of reindeer many, many, many miles across the snow and suddenly found himself in a village full of people he didn't recognize. And they gave him lichen to eat, which to be honest is a bit of a giveaway. He went to sleep and then he, he, he knew he had a wife, he couldn't remember her name. He dreamt he was surrounded by reindeer and realized that they were reindeer, got up and fled back to his village in absolute terror. And that was really, you know, if you have to describe what it was like, what it was viscerally like at that point with the hawk, it was like that. I'd become more hawk than human. And I ended up um, realizing that I was cripplingly depressed. <laughs> and I went to the doctors um, and got some antidepressants and slowly began to crawl back into the world. There was a great bit in the, in the doctors, actually, where he said, um, could you do this, uh, this questionnaire? I, I thought, I'm going to get them all wrong. So I went down it, and I looked at these questions, and I was trying to answer them. And one of them said, do you take less care with your personal appearance than formerly? And I remember staring at myself, and I think I actually had rabbit blood on my trousers at that point, and thinking, I don't know, do, do I, you know? And <laughs> I made an effort, I got back into the world, I started to fly the hawk more, um, I started to fly her at a slightly higher weight, she became quite independent, there were a lot of inadvertent poaching episodes. I live in constant terror that one of the landowners from South Cambridge is going to turn up at one of my talks, and there'll be a bit of a reckoning about some pheasants. Um, but I think what I wanted to say at this point, what the big realization was that Mabel taught me that we routinely use nature as a mirror of ourselves. And I, I wanted her to be all the things I was. I wanted her to be this kind of, um, this free, wild, griefless uh, thing, um, full of rage as you are when you're grieving. But actually what made Mabel extraordinary was that she was not human. And we managed to develop this relationship which was really about honoring that difference between, between species. We ended up having this partnership that was an extraordinary communication between the wild and the human that seemed to be quite equitable and quite sort of uh, acceptable on both sides. Um, at, at times she did look like a, like a teddy bear, but uh, quite a fierce one. And uh, I think more than anything else, Mabel didn't just accompany me through a, a year of grief, but um, and it sounds terribly hackneyed, she really, really taught me how to be a person.
Thank you very much. <laughs>